Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Felicity Turner is Associate Professor of History and the Honors Program Coordinator at Georgia Southern University. Her teaching and research interests include legal history, history of medicine, women, gender, and sexuality, law and society, and 19th century U.S. history. She's the author of The Contradictions of Reform, Prosecuting Infant Murder in the 19th Century U.S., published in Law and History Review in May 2021, and Rights and the Ambiguities of the Law, Infanticide in the 19th Century U.S. South, published in the Journal of the Civil War Era in September 2014. The latter won the Coordinating Council for Women in History, Napper Chudhury, First Article Award. Today we'll be discussing her forthcoming work, Proving Pregnancy, Gender, Law, and Medical Knowledge in the 19th Century United States, which will be published by the University of North Carolina Press in September 2022. Professor Turner, welcome to the show. Thank you, Siobhan. Thank you very much for having me. To start off, could you give a brief overview of your book and describe its central argument or arguments? Well, the book begins in the late 18th century, early 19th century, and it traces how knowledge of pregnancy and childbirth shifted from being something akin to property, widely shared by a range of women from all races and ethnicities within Western communities, to a form of property exclusively held by upper-class white men in the late 19th century, and that property was owned or held by people we recognize today as medical doctors. And in order to trace this shift, I use a range of sources, including medical literature, state legislative records, newspapers, in some cases fiction. But most important to my research were hundreds of coroner's inquests in relation to infanticide and infant death, a crime specific to women, principally drawn from two states, Connecticut and North Carolina. I do use some cases from elsewhere, but those were my two primary sites of research. And My argument is, in many ways, an argument about the history of professionalization. And so it's not a history isolated to the medical profession, because professionalization happened with law too. And you know this, I know, with your own work, what you're working on. But what I argue is that the history of how this happened in relation to medicine is largely incomplete. Many histories, whether medical or legal, have conventionally focused upon state legislation and decisions in state appellate courts. The fight to criminalize abortion is a large part of the story, too, with the American Medical Association, AMA, pushing doctors who practiced abortion out of the so-called legitimate medical profession. And so my book adopts a different approach, arguing that local law, or what happened in local communities, is a very important part of the history of how physicians came to assume a privileged position within uh, local communities. State legislation made no difference if people on the ground, for example, didn't believe a crime, in this case, the crime of infanticide had occurred or placed limited value upon the testimony of a doctor within criminal forms, okay? So it didn't matter what state legislation said. And so my book argues that tracing the changing involvement of formally trained positions in forums such as coroner's inquests shows us how knowledge about pregnancy shifted from being something that was largely the province of women to becoming the province of men, and how men came to be accepted as experts in that arena. So 
So your work argues that medical knowledge should be understood as a form of property in 19th century America. What are the stakes of expanding conceptions of what constitutes property? And how did who could possess this medical knowledge property change over time? So if historians expand conceptions or ideas about what constituted property and how property could be owned or possessed, then I suggest historical narratives become more diverse. And we understand that there was a far greater range of people who possessed property as opposed to what existing historical narratives might suggest. And so in my work, I focus on knowledge of childbirth and pregnancy as property. And beyond that, knowledge of and about the female body more generally. But I'm very clear about who could make claims to possession of that knowledge and how that changed over time. So in the early decades of the 19th century, many people, primarily women, had knowledge of childbirth, either from firsthand experience or because they were trained midwives. But those with experience, and I use that term sort of, you know, I put that in quotation marks, could include children, for example, or older teenagers who had watched and or aided their mother in giving birth multiple times, even if they had not given birth themselves. So experience of childbirth could take many forms, but it tended to be restricted to women in the earlier decades of the 19th century, as men did not go into birthing rooms, particularly amongst poor and working class women although the situation was markedly different with enslaved women, where some enslavers would often call white physicians to go in to watch enslaved women give birth. So using this kind of understanding of knowledge as property, we can see how even young women, around 10 or so, might have been able to say that they possessed property because they possessed knowledge of childbirth in this way. And so existing historical frameworks of how we understand property tend to identify it as something that can be commodified in some way, if not for money, then as something that can be battered. And my book is trying to stretch these boundaries or demonstrate the limitations of these ideas within certain contexts. So we are unable to recognize the value of the knowledge these women held because what we're looking for are women and men who commodified that knowledge or their property in particular ways. So, you know, they advertise themselves as a doctress, as a midwife, as a doctor, okay? And so over time, getting back to your question about how these things changed, well, this did change, this idea. And this knowledge came to be affixed or attached, if you like, to a medical license. And who could hold a medical license was highly restricted. Generally educated white, wealthy males. And this change was gradual. It took an extended period of time. It, it operated differently in different states. It happened much more slowly in the southern states. And it was complex. And obviously, midwives continued to practice while physicians did so. So it wasn't sort of a, okay, physicians, they're in charge now and midwives are gone. But reading local inquests, what you find is the voices of local women, which had once been very powerful in those forms, they were pushed to the margins. And this is a really significant change. Doctors were beginning to be a lot more powerful and authoritative within those contexts. And when I say doctors, I mean doctors trained at medical institutions, at sort of formally recognized medical institutions. And by claiming knowledge of gynecology 
as their exclusive property. And that's key. They make an exclusive claim to possession of that knowledge. We own this knowledge and nobody else does. This eventually enabled physicians and others to assert control of not just the knowledge, but the bodies subject to that knowledge. So the bodies of women. And so that's going to become key after the Civil War, I argue in my book. What was the historical landscape in which the cases you write about were happening? Many people who listen to this podcast likely know about the concept of legal pluralism, but what is medical pluralism and how does that relate to the law? So medical pluralism is analogous or analogous to the idea of legal pluralism. It's a term that acknowledges the multiplicity of medical or health care sources that existed in the first half of the 19th century U.S. And I sort of went hunting for this term. It's used a little bit by medical anthropologists, but historians don't use it so much. They tend to refer to the medical marketplace, once again, placing this emphasis upon commodification of knowledge. So as I know in my book, people turned to whatever could help them during this period, the sort of first half of the 19th century U.S., rather than what we might think of today as specialist expertise. And so there was no regulation of healthcare, and all of this explains why local whites, especially poor whites, might turn to an enslaved black healer for help, rather than seeking out someone who called himself a doctor, whatever that might mean. Okay, and if you go through census records for this period, you know, it's like you can see Doc Cope, but Doc could just be his first name. It could actually mean he had some kind of training, or it could just be that people acknowledged him as a healer in the community just because he'd help people. And so further, as the famed example of Laurel Thatcher Ulrich's A Midwife's Tale shows us, women had long been respected as healers in their local communities. So to be a midwife meant more than being able to deliver babies, for example. And so the framework of medical pluralism also helps explain why knowledge about pregnancy wasn't naturalized in this earlier period in the way that it comes to be naturalized later on. By that, I mean people did not assume that all women knew everything about pregnancy because she was simply a woman. Those kind of naturalized assumptions actually emerged later in the 19th century. And that's key in my book, sort of understanding that idea. And they were perpetuated largely by the male-dominated medical profession for particular reasons, albeit supported by women's magazines and fiction that naturalized white women's roles in particular as mothers. So when I think about medicine in this early period, I like to think of it as a kind of healthcare democracy, if you like, <laughs> um, providing opportunities for people from all walks of life, really, white women, enslaved people, free blacks, Native Americans, and poor white men to provide healthcare. And for people working in the history of medicine, I mean, there's been a lot of books in this area recently that have sort of aimed at expanding this idea about who was providing healthcare in this early period. And one of the most notable is Pablo Gomez's The Experiential Caribbean, for example. So this idea of who's providing healthcare and who they're providing it to. So you recently participated in Law and History Review's Dobbs special issue, writing A View of Dobbs from the 19th Century. What can your work teach us about the Dobbs case? 
uh, the recent Supreme Court case and the relationship between history and law more generally? I think the main thing it can teach us, or my work can teach us about the Dobbs case, because I look at the workings of law in local communities, is that everyday people were very knowledgeable about pregnancy, childbirth, and things like abortion. Was a fetus full term, preterm, if full term had the infant breathed? I mean, these are the questions they ask all the time in these inquests. And yes, they often have doctors there, but a doctor is just one person who's there. Often they're asking midwives, experienced women in the community, you know, these are the people they're turning to. And they're discussing these questions with men, you know, so everybody's part of these discussions. And this is particularly so in these early decades of the 19th century, prior to the Civil War. And the knowledge wasn't restricted to physicians. And in the South, ideas about abortion or legal ideas about abortion anyway, were not a subject for state legislatures. Most state legislatures in the South didn't pass statutes against abortion until the 1870s at the earliest. And I think it's really the 1880s and beyond. I was looking for this recently in relation to something I'm writing. And prohibitions against abortion and punishments for the crime were something that were hammered out and worked out at the local level. And in Dobbs, the Supreme Court ruled that the decision provided the freedom for state legislatures to make the decision about abortion or state legislators elected by the people. So they're, they're sending this back to the states. But what the cases I examined demonstrate is that people didn't really turn to state legislatures to make those decisions for them until well after the Civil War, particularly in the South, which is, that's where most states are now actively working to limit access to abortion. So my work underscores, I think, what many historians and legal scholars have been saying that the Supreme Court has a deeply flawed understanding of history, particularly the history of abortion. Selective, maybe, not flawed, <laughs> selective. But in terms of what Dobbs can, or my work can teach us about the relationship between history and law more generally, I'm not really sure I have an answer for that question. I possibly suggest that lawyers and law clerks should do more history classes. Probably what I'd say is that it does demonstrate the importance of teaching about a diversity of experiences and that we think about law in a range of ways. So not just as these sort of formal texts and what's produced by state legislatures. And I think pretty much everybody who listens to your podcast would be familiar with that idea. But all of that being said, I'm not sure if they teach about legal pluralism in law schools. And if they don't, maybe they should start doing so, making that a required part of the law school curriculum. But yes, it's a great question. I don't know if I have an answer. <laughs> In what ways did the cases you studied serve as a rhetorical device to debate broader issues about the shape and constitution of the American polity? Infanticide cases served as a way for Americans to debate broader issues about slavery as they approach the Civil War. They really provide a language to do this without, in some cases, actually talking about slavery. And so the case of Magragana, well known to most people, I think, because of its centrality to Toni Morrison's 1987 Pulitzer Prize winning novel, Beloved, is a clear example of this. Ghana's case is from 1856. And it polarized the nation at the time. 
with pro-slavery activists demanding that she be returned to her Kentucky owner. She escaped from Kentucky. And anti-slavery activists demanding she be tried for infanticide in Ohio, where she had committed the crime of killing her infant child as her owner closed in after she escaped with her children. And they wanted her to be tried there because, you know, the idea is, well, even if she was imprisoned for life, at least then she wouldn't be sent back to slavery. And maybe they could persuade the Ohio governor to show her some mercy and release her. So the idea of infanticide and what its presence meant in a um, sort of civilized nation, which is what the United States was aspiring to be in this sort of developing period, was troubling. Rhetorically, people associated infanticide and the presence of infanticide with uncivilized or heathen nations, perhaps, unchristian nations. That's what I'm trying to say here. So that's where you had infanticide. You didn't have it in places like the United States. Its presence there was troubling. But all of these rhetorical debates in newspapers and so forth, and pamphlets mostly, so newspapers, pamphlets, books about infanticide were disconnected from how cases of infanticide were playing out in local communities, the cases that I examined, and how people handled those cases. I mean, the case of Margaret Garner is really unusual precisely because it hits national headlines everywhere. So what happened is both pro-slavery supporters and anti-slavery activists developed a rhetoric from different positions that infanticide was associated with slavery and old blackness, okay? So they're coming from different positions, though they end up kind of agreeing in some way that there's an association between infanticide and slavery. And this became a big problem once slavery ended and infanticide persisted, okay? Because obviously they hadn't been paying too much attention, these people who were really engaged in developing the rhetoric, as to how much it was actually happening on the ground in local communities prior to the Civil War. So the, there was no pre-existing rhetoric designed to explain the persistence of infanticide, and so they adapted the existing rhetoric in ways that were damaging for all women, particularly newly freed women. So they they sort of said, well, rather than this being a cause, you know, something associated with slavery, it's something associated with being free, something associated with being black. And so this was, you know, particularly damaging for newly freed women. And so that was one of the major problems of the rhetoric that emerged after the Civil War. And how does your work by focusing on local law reveal new ambiguities about the expansion of rights in the post-Civil War era? For example, you write that in the post-Civil War era, throughout America, all women faced increased scrutiny of their sexual behavior and greater regulation over their bodies as the new nation attempted to curb the freedom of the newly emancipated and the exploding working class population? So this is a really great question, demonstrating how closely you read the book, for which I'm very grateful. But it's also a really great question because it's something I've been thinking about again recently in relation to a few other pieces um, I've been working on. In relation to the tension between the overarching framework of rights at the federal level 
and individual legal outcomes during reconstruction, particularly in relation to criminal trials or criminal cases, I should say. And the existing narrative of Reconstruction is that this is a period which sees the expansion of a large number of rights to African-Americans, particularly at the federal level. So even though historians and legal scholars have been complicating this narrative now for a number of years, this still tends to be where the focus of a lot of historical work remains. But if you look at formal rights in relation to medicine during Reconstruction, the big winners are well-educated middle to upper-class white males. And what they gained was the formal right to practice medicine. And this meant they got to pick and choose who could and could not practice. They could charge for their services. They could sue to recover fees. They transformed the practice of medicine into a particular kind of property right, a license to which was attached a further bundle of other rights. But this was not just about at the level of expanding state legislation. What I write about is the impact of these expanding rights within local communities. I mean, that's, that's my focus. Inquests were transformed, for example, into sites where only particular men, such as physicians, usually white, surveilled all women's bodies, white and black. And so that had not been the practice previously. And so prior to the Civil War, it was white women who inspected the bodies of other white women accused of infanticide. White doctors, white male doctors, always had access to the bodies of enslaved women. And after the Civil War, this didn't change for newly freed women. They were scrutinized in much the same way as they always had been if accused of the crime of infanticide. But they also had access now to white male doctors to the bodies of white women accused of the crime of infanticide. Now, this may not seem like much, okay, this increased scrutiny of bodies, but if you read my book, well, you'll understand and you'll see that these physical examinations, which often took place in front of at least one or more people, were incredibly physically invasive and probably painful, particularly if the woman had actually given birth, okay? So, I mean, this is why the granular level of looking at the inquest is so important. So even if the outcome of an inquest was, okay, we've looked, we've examined all of the evidence, now there's been a close physical examination of the woman's body, we're not going to proceed to trial. The accused woman has had her body, you know, she'd had her body poked at, scrutinized, and prodded in ways that I suggest, you know, restricted her bodily autonomy. And so as women lost control over asserting that they possessed knowledge of women's bodies, they also lost control of the bodies themselves. And so initially, this is poor Black, poor white women, but over time, you know, this extends further. And so... What assumptions about, uh, and this is a quote from your book, women, sanity, and childbirth were developed during Reconstruction, and what repercussions have those assumptions had? So during Reconstruction, and even before in some cases, white male physicians naturalized, or they were beginning to naturalize ideas about childbirth. And by that, I mean they cemented an argument that women naturally possessed knowledge about childbirth and pregnancy because they were women. Okay, so, well, 
because you're a woman and you have a womb, you know about pregnancy and childbirth. And that same natural knowledge, you know, that, that same, you know, being a woman meant that you were unfit for the same duties, jobs, and responsibilities as men. Because they were women, they were naturally less reasonable and naturally less sane than white males. So you're saying reasonable white male was the standard by which every other person was judged and sort of women were less than. So this is the sort of, they're cemented as second-class citizens during Reconstruction, and, and this is part of that. And so, as such, women could not professionalize as physicians. They couldn't move into those, those medical circles, and only men could do so. And this may be sort of the same kind of argument that you're finding in your own research about uh, lawyers, and I'm looking forward to reading this <laughs> in several years once, once it is published. And one of the leading advocates of this position was actually Dr. Horatio Stora, who was a leader of the AMA, who worked alongside trained female physicians during this period. It seems hypocritical, of course it was, but he characterized those women as the exception to his general maxim. He said, sort of said, well, they're unusual, but every other woman can't work as a doctor. And he gave a big address to the AMA stating this position. In the, it was either the 1860s or 70s. And he's also a leading anti-abortion voice of the period. So all of this goes hand in hand, this idea of sort of controlling women's bodies, regulating women's bodies. And these assumptions served physicians particularly well at the moment of professionalization. If women did attempt to make an argument that they possessed superior knowledge in relation to female anatomy and female medicine because they were women, and I think sort of at some point Elizabeth Cady Stanton might have been making noises about that. Then male physicians could rebut that by saying those things that you're appealing to, to say that, that give you authority in this arena, are also the same things that limit your capacity to speak in this arena. They make you less capable than men, more prone to insanity, and more prone to losing your reason. And so therefore, we cannot trust women as physicians. They are not as reasonable as men. So it's a kind of circular argument, but it's basically saying the very things that give you the potential to have the expertise in this area are the very things that make you less expert. So that was the nature of that argument. And I would suggest in terms of what repercussions of those assumptions had, that in many ways they still persist to this day. I mean, we see this amplified in the Dobbs decision. We've kind of come full circle in many ways. I come back to this sort of, well, okay, men are now getting to make decisions about women's bodies and what they can do with those bodies, because women are not necessarily capable of making those decisions. All right. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Shavana. It's been great. I really enjoyed talking about my book, and I hope your listeners enjoy hearing about it too and race out to buy it. 